Sometimes the hymn goes by too fast. I need to go back and read that this week, those wonderful words. Well, let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm sure by now you're wondering what the story is with the painting that is over here to my right, your left. Well, let me tell you, um, this is my brother Nate up here. I couldn't find any better picture. This is my brother Nate. Uh, Nate is an artist and an art teacher, and he's very, very good at both of those things that he does for a living. Um, I know that it might be seen as a conflict of interest, but I figured I'd note uh, on the front end that he does do commissions for that blank wall in your, in your house. That's all I'm going to say right there. Uh, this is one of his old paintings. Uh, it's a painting of a random home on Summit Avenue in St. Paul, the oldest and most stately street in the city. And it's my personal favorite street in my hometown of St. Paul. Nate had painted this one winter, and his wife, my sister-in-law, Kara, liked it enough that she wanted to hang it up in their living room rather than have it collect dust under the stairs where my brother works. So it hung up in his house uh, for perhaps a year. And about 12 years ago, I was sitting in the living room with my brother, and in an effort to have a moment with my brother, I said to him, Nate, I love that painting so much. It's a great palette, the content, the composition. It's really good, man. Good job. That was great. Now, it's important for you to understand that my brother is not the uh, touchy-feely type person. He's not one for significant heart-to-heart moments. He's not the kind of guy who's going to hug it out with someone, even his brother, who loves to hug it out with people. I love hugging it out with people. So Nate's response was not totally out of the blue to me. Oh, you like it? Then you should take it, because I hate it. (laughs) That painting drives me crazy. Why does that drive you crazy, Nate? Because it's the worst. I can tell you about... Ten things that are wrong with that painting. I hate it. Well, geez, thanks, Nate, but I don't don't think I have room in our car to fit that and and take it back to Chicago. Nate then proceeded to walk over to the wall to take the painting off the wall, lay it on its side, rip the canvas off the frame, folded the canvas in half and laid it on my lap and said, now it's going to fit in your car. You can figure out the dimensions, you can build a new frame and restretch it, just take it. Don't you have an anniversary or a birthday sometime soon? Just take it. Happy birthday. <laughs> Since then, obviously it's been reframed. For those of you who know my handiwork acumen, you know that I didn't do that. We had it professionally framed. It hangs over our fireplace in our house. This painting is, in some ways, my happy place. Uh, we actually chose the color of our living room to match the palette of this painting. On a hot, muggy day in August, I look at this painting with the snow on the ground and I'm transported back to that special place and I'm reminded of some years in my life that I really cherish, particularly the year that I lived right around the corner uh, from this house. It's a daily reminder of something good. It's a calming force for me. But for my brother, it's none of those things, right? I don't think he truly hates this work, that's my guess. I think he's proud of it on some level, but for him, it was a reminder of of not good things, but rather bad things, imperfections, annoyances, frustrations. He would talk about how the second floor of the house was too tall, how the mail car isn't isn't proportioned correctly. 
I later pointed out that on the street sign, there's no shading for the street sign on the, on the uh, snow, and he just rolled his eyes. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how the same painting is sentimental and precious to me and my family, but distracting and, and frustrating to somebody else? We're starting week seven of our community Bible experience. For those of you who are visiting with us or haven't been around with us much this winter, we've been reading through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible together. We've been following this book, which is just kind of a remix of the Bible itself in a little more readable form. It's available to you in the Garden Court if you are interested in uh, joining us for the last couple weeks, the stretch run here. For those of you who have been following along, I suppose you are probably feeling one of two ways uh, after going through Numbers, uh, Leviticus, and, and now into Deuteronomy this week. Either you are reading the journey of God's people and you are reminded of a loving and caring God who is compassionate and desires to be in relationship with his people, or you feel like you've just been slogging through sacrifices and violent acts and, and slavery and, and plagues, and you're faced with a God who often, quite honestly, comes across as less than we might hope. I think it's okay to say that. You're either drawn toward a, a holy and loving God, or you only see a taskmaster God who loves retributive justice, and, and you leave the word frustrated and distracted. It's okay for you to feel one way or the other, because I think the people of Israel were quite the same. The first couple chapters of Deuteronomy portray Moses speaking to the people of Israel about where they have been, what they've come through, and, and where they are now. He reminds them that 40 years ago, they were standing in the exact same place, the exact same spot, on the doorstep of the land that God had promised them. But they didn't enter because of their grumbling and their complaining and their, and their unwillingness to obey God. So they were banished back in the direction of the Red Sea for the length of an entire generation, 40 years. And here they are again with an opportunity to enter into this promised land, to do it right this time. So before they enter the land, Moses wants to give the people a reminder of where they've been and where they are now. Of the laws of God, the, the Ten Commandments and the holiness laws. So when it's time for the people of God to enter into the future that God has for them, they might not repeat their previous mistake. But remember, this is a totally new generation, save just a handful of people. A generation that had no memory of fleeing Egypt, or crossing the Red Sea, or the cloud of presence at, at Mount Sinai. All that they knew was wandering. So the book of Deuteronomy is essentially a collection of Moses' sermons in the 40 days before they enter the land. They were about to enter a new land and a new reality with new dangers and new challenges. So Moses uses his sermons to remind them of a good and loving God, reiterating his law and calling the people to heed God's power and to choose obedience to him. Pastor Joy spoke last week about the book of Numbers being a scrapbook of sorts for the people of God, a collection of receipts and remembrances and stories uh, for Israel. She encouraged us to think about our own scrapbooks and the pages that we would just assume nobody sees. 
inviting us to display them because after all, they belong in our story. They belong in our scrapbook. Well, if Numbers is a scrapbook, then Deuteronomy is the primer. It's the, it's the synopsis. It's the Cliff's Notes version of everything in the scrapbook. It's the overarching pep talk. Actually, that's best. It's a pep talk before the promise becomes a reality. The overall message of Deuteronomy is looking back at everything, looking at back at the good and the bad. Let's be reminded of the author of this story and choose now to really truly follow him. I'm quite certain that as some in this generation heard these sermons, this synopsis of God's law, this great pep talk of God's character and work, that some received this as a positive reminder. They found themselves ready to passionately follow, while others would have seen this as a negative and painful reminder and found themselves reluctant to go any further with this God. This was their moment of decision. Their moment of decision. And then comes chapter 6, the beginning of which is one of the singular most important beloved and recited passages in all of Scripture. Moses starts this way. Let me read it again for you. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy. So that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently that you may go well, uh, that it may go well with you, and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Moses is saying that after it all, these laws and, and stipulations and procedures of which there are so, so many, that God's intent is for the people's well-being, that the people of God should heed these things not simply for moral reasons, to do the right thing, but because listening to God, respecting and revering his wishes, will help things go well for them, will lead to a flourishing and prosperous life. It will lead to a long life and generational blessing and full flourishing for them. So after years of hearing how to be obedient to God, Moses is telling them clearly and finally why they should be obedient to God. Maybe as you've read that, uh, gone through community Bible experience, you've just felt like all I'm hearing about is the how to do things, how to execute this the correct way. Why? Tell me why. Well, here's why. You know, Moses once told God that he, he, couldn't, he wouldn't dare, couldn't talk to the people of God, couldn't be God's mouthpiece because he just wasn't eloquent enough. And yet, here he shares some of the most eloquent words in all of Scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is called the Shema, which means to hear in Hebrew. Here, Shema is here. And it has one primary assertion. There's only one true God, and that this true God is Israel's God. And the Israelites should, should never honor in any way any other God. 
This God cannot be acknowledged in many forms, like the idols, the Baals that were in Canaan. There's only one God. There's not a God of rain and sun and harvest. There's one God. And Israel has already entered into a relationship, a covenant relationship, a, a, an oath and a promise relationship with him. And what was to be Israel's relationship with the Lord? What is it supposed to look like? They were to love him totally. Don't get too hung up on what it means to love God with your heart and your soul and your might. These verses don't really invite us into thinking about loving God with our intellectual selves over and against our emotional selves or our physical selves. Instead, this is a gathering of terms to indicate the totality of the person. When Jesus is asked what's the greatest commandment, he asserts that this is it. And he adds the mind as well to this, which makes sense in a Greek context. But the meaning is exactly the same, and that is we are to love God with our whole selves, with everything that we have, every part, nothing withheld. But Moses doesn't stop. He offers a command from God. So keep these words I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. And write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These are interesting verses. Israel is commanded to be reminded daily of these words. To teach them to their children, to bind them on their hands and their heads and to write them on their doorposts. Our our most devout Jewish brothers and sisters take take these verses very seriously, as some of you know. They, They recite the Shema, Hear, O Israel, three times a day with their shoulders squared in the direction, like this, squared in the direction of Jerusalem. You'll see Orthodox Jews with, with leather bands on their wrists and on their foreheads that hold up small boxes. Can you see the small box on his, on his forehead there? These are called phylacteries, these things that they bind themselves with. And in each of those boxes, you want to guess what's in there? There's a tiny little scroll with a, with a handwritten version of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Literally, they are, they are binding these words on their heads and their hands. Likewise, in many Jewish houses, you will see a small box on the main door frame, a box that also contains a very small scroll of Deuteronomy 6. It's called a masuza. Um, I put a picture up here. I took this this morning on my way out. That's mine right there. It's on the back door of my house. I bought it in Israel because I was so taken with the idea of that daily Reminder, I did a simple calculation this week. In a week, I think, if I've calculated correctly, I walk in and out of my back door at least 80 times in a week. Now, I, th- that door gets a lot of traffic because I forget things all the time back home and I'm running back and forth, but at least 80 times a week. So if I took seriously the words that were tucked in that little masuza, that little box, that's 80 reminders a week. I think that's pretty effective. I think we have something to learn from our more orthodox Jewish brothers and sisters. I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to close today and ask us now to enter into this text. And I'm going to do so by asking three questions, three simple questions. The first is this. 
in what ways are you reminded of your relationship with God throughout the day? Pretty simple question. Not always a simple answer for us. You could certainly bind these reminders on your hands and your wrists with phylacteries. I'm sure you could probably go on Amazon and buy phylacteries if you wanted to do that. You could purchase a masuza quite easily, but you don't have to do those things. You just need a visible and tangible reminder of the core of your relationship with God, that he is your God and your job, your number one job each and every day is to love him with everything that you have. That reminder needs to be prominently visible. Figuratively, it needs to be on the feature wall of your spiritual house, right? Here's some suggestions, practical things that I picked up along the way. Start each day with prayer and end that prayer with something like this. God, this is your day. I'm giving it over to you and I desire to love you. Simple reminder. Some people have uh, figured out a way to have a Bible verse or a devotion texted to them or pushed to their phone every day so that they can stop and, and be reminded of their relationship with God. I was hoping Marilyn Larson would be here today. As some of you remember being in her house on Almond Street, and she had that wonderful sunroom, and she would walk you around that sunroom and this thing on the wall and this little trinket and this book and this chair and why they all had meaning to her. And she could tell you how each of those pieces of art and things in her house drew her into relationship with God. It's one of my favorite rooms that I've ever been in, right? Because everything had meaning. Maybe you need to arrange your life in a way that you remember your relationship with God and your desire to love him each day. Do you have those daily reminders? If not... It's time for you to get intentional. And remember, this is a command from Scripture, not a suggestion, command from Scripture. Second question I have is a little deeper, and that's this. How do you receive those reminders? Remember that when the people of Israel received this word, they were at least in part disgruntled. Not all of them would have received these eloquent words with, with joy and excitement, so when I say to you this morning, there's one God revealed fully through the person of Jesus Christ and the giving of his spirit who sustains all and upholds all, and your primary job is to love him, how do you receive those words today? How does it make you feel? Some of you will find encouragement and energy in those words. For others, maybe that feels a little prescriptive to you or trite or heavy-handed. What I want to say is how we receive these words is extremely important. Remember that Moses utters these words because he desires for the people to never forget the gracious God who gave them the land, who brought them out of slavery, nor their responsibilities to worship him with a correct attitude. That's why he says them. But maybe you look back on the scrapbook of your story and you have a tough time seeing God in the midst of it. Perhaps you are aware of his absence more than you are his presence. If he's the one God who sustains all, maybe, you, maybe some of you feel like he hasn't done a very good job in your life. Maybe you've been told your whole life how to be a good Christian, but no one has ever told you why you ought to follow Jesus. Maybe these daily reminders bring up more questions than they do assurance for you. But let me challenge you for a moment if you're one of those people who who receive these in a, in a, 
uh, frustrated or discouraged way. If what I'm saying is true, that there's only one true holy God who sustains and upholds all, what other options do you have? Will it benefit you to move away from him in your pain or your shame or your indifference? To what else or whom else are you going to turn? There's no other God but him. And despite the not-so-pretty pages of Israel's scrapbook, it is clear to me that this one true God is constantly pursuing his people, desiring to be in a mutually loving relationship with them. Maybe you've been running from every reminder of God, but I'm willing to wager that such running has not gotten you to where you want to be. Maybe it's time to let these words wash over you and to really believe them. The Lord revealed fully through the person of Jesus Christ and the giving of his spirit is the one true God who sustains and upholds all things and wants to be in relationship with you each and every day. Each and every day. Third question is kind of a rhetorical one. Do you want it to go well for you moving forward? My guess is that your answer is yes, I would like that. You want things to go well for you and your future Well, we can easily go to a place where we believe that if we simply believe in God and and say the right words, that everything's going to go well for us. But what we often miss is this. Israel's way of life, their way of life depended fully on the character of the God who they worship. Those two things went together. The promise that things will go well for you in the land that you are about to possess, when Moses says that, it's not contingent on saying the right words at the right time, with your shoulders pointed in the right direction. The promise is contingent on the relationship, maintaining the relationship. And if you're like me and most other humans that have ever lived, you need daily reminders of what's most important because if you want the brightest and best and healthiest for what is ahead in your life, it must involve that relationship, that love of God. As Jesus confirmed, this is the greatest most unifying of all commandments. And when we couple love of God with love for others, we are in the best place that we could possibly be. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to join me in a recitation of the Shema. Paraphrase slightly to incorporate the church, uh, the Christian church as the people of God. I invite you to join me as a way of, uh, of saying, God, you are the one true God, and I'm thankful for you, and I'm thankful for the reminder that you give to me this morning, and I want to be in relationship with you. And then just as I have Summit Avenue, St. Paul, centrally located as a daily reminder of something good for me, I want you to think about what it would mean to have a declaration of love for God as a central part of your daily practice the feature wall in your, in your heart. So receive this as an extension of Moses' pep talk before the glorious promises that God has before you. I've got this on the screen here. And I'm going to invite you to recite it with me three times together with a little pause in between each one as a way of closing this morning. Join with me. Here, O people of God, The Lord our God is God alone. 
Let us love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our strength, all that we have. Again, hear, O people of God, the Lord our God is God alone. Let us love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our strength, all that we have. One more time. Hear, O people of God, the Lord our God is God alone. Let us love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our strength, all that we have. Amen.